Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Today is Thursday, February 22nd, 2018. I'm your host, Charlie Matessian, sitting in for Scott Bland, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. This week, one issue towers over everything else. The gun control debate in the wake of the horrific school shooting in Parkland, Florida last week. We'll call Florida Playbook author and reporter Mark Caputo, and he'll give us some on-the-ground scoop from Florida. Then we'll discuss how the roiling Florida debate is impacting Washington policymaking, both in Congress and in the White House. Finally, we'll close with a discussion on yet another cabinet official whose fate is up in the air. Veterans Affairs Secretary David Shulkin, the last cabinet holdover from the Obama administration, and an official who's battling political subversion within his own agency. Before we get started, a reminder. If you like the show and want to support the Nerdcast, subscribe, rate us, and write a review. This helps us rise in the Apple Podcast charts and allows even more people to discover the Nerdcast. And you know we love hearing from our listeners. We want your feedback and your questions. Email us at nerdcast at politico.com. Let's get started with a call to Mark Caputo in Miami. Hey, what's up? I can hear him. First time caller, big fan of yours, Mr. Caputo. Yeah, it's a, it's a big fan club, though, man. You got you to gotta, you gotta call my office. Let's jump right in on this Florida story. Uh, obviously, this has really captured the attention of the nation, this horrific incident in, in Florida, and I, and I know you've been following it pretty closely. Can you t- tell us a little bit about uh, the impact that Marjorie Stoneman Douglas students and protesters are having in Tallahassee, but also uh, across the state as a whole? You know, in about two decades of covering Florida politics, I've never seen a Republican-led legislature actually seriously entertain even the smallest measures of gun control, and they're doing that. So even though it was grim and even though it was terrible, the timing could not have been better because it happened right during the legislative session. And lawmakers are basically trapped in Tallahassee, and you had these incredibly energetic, eloquent, smart, organized, dedicated kids who just, led almost like a social media revolution and actually brought their kind of their feet to Tallahassee to put extra pressure on lawmakers and it's paying off. Now the kids of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, they'd like to see an, uh, an assault weapons ban that is a ban on high capacity pistol grip semi-automatic rifles. You're not going to see that out of this Republican-led legislature and you're not going to see a bill like that signed by Republican Governor Rick Scott. What you probably are going to see as far as gun control is the regulation of these assault rifles like they regulate handguns. And that's really two things. It's one, actually having a three-day waiting period, which you don't have for the purchase of rifles in Florida generally, and also limiting their sale to people who are 21 and older. If you've been in Tallahassee, if you've lived in Florida, we've got a lot of armed people 
and it's a pretty pro-NRA state, that's a pretty major concession that you're seeing by this GOP-led legislature. Now, uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would have watched the CNN town hall last night in Florida uh, on the uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting. And what really struck me was uh, what happened to Marco Rubio there. Senator Rubio, can you tell me right now that you will not accept a single donation from the NRA in the future? There, that, that is the wrong way to look. First of all, the answer is people buy into my agenda. You can say Number no. second, well... Senator Rubio really took quite a beating on stage, and I think that was really what a lot of people will remember from that. And there was something of a debate that I noticed at least going on on Twitter as this was happening where you know some people were uh, saying, hey, at least give Marco Rubio credit for going there. No other Republican had the guts to go there and, and stand up on stage and try to defend his position. And yet you saw also lots of uh, bile and anger directed toward Rubio saying you know, he's getting what, what is coming to him. Uh, after all, isn't that his job to stand up before his constituents and take the heat. Can, can you uh, tell us a little bit about the, the reaction to the town hall in, uh, in Florida? I, I mean, it, it, was that as much of a beating on Rubio as it looked? I think it kind of depends. And, and you, summed it up, you summed up well the perceptions that Rubio's own supporters, his inner circle, uh, people who are uh, friends and longtime backers, observers of Rubio's, uh, you know, they see... Rubio's decision to go there as either completely stupid and foolhardy because he changed no minds and he wound up becoming a little bit of a social media sensation when he got tooled up on by a high school kid over accepting NRA donations and contributions. And then there's the other camp in Rubio world that says, look, you know, Marcos stood his ground. He went, he knew he was going to be, in one person's phrasing, attending a public stoning or, or a scapegoating of a politician, and he took his lumps because he kind of had to. He, he understood that this was something that he could not avoid. And, you know, if you're going to hold a town hall as a Republican, there's one county you don't want to do it in in Florida, and that's Broward County, or as Republicans like to call it, the People's Republic of Broward County. It's incredibly Democratic. It has the highest concentration of Democrats. And then when you factor in independents, it is the most liberal county in the state. If there is one county to go to and to be anti-gun in, it's Broward County. And Marco Rubio is a pro-gun Republican in this anti-gun Democratic county, and it showed. Well, in any case, it's it's uh, something we're going to be watching really closely, not just the, the political uh, response to the, the shooting, but the, to the, the debate itself has changed so dramatically, it seems. It feels almost as if we're a tipping point. Mark, thanks so much for taking uh, all this time to walk us through that. Thanks, Charlie. Now let's welcome White House reporter Andrew Restuccia. Hey, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. And we've also got a first-time nerdcaster, Congress reporter and scoop machine Rachel Bade. Hey, Rachel. Hey, glad to be on. Our first data point today is the number eight. The shooting in Parkland, Florida on Wednesday, February 14th, marked the eighth school shooting that has taken place in the United States in 2018. That's eight school shootings in just 53 days. Rachel, this shooting has brought gun control to the forefront of the national conversation once again. How is Congress reacting? 
a lot of what you would expect with uh, both sides sort of further uh, entrenched in their positions, although I would say there are some Republicans who I think are feeling the heat right now and want to do something to, just to say they did something without alienating the NRA at the same time. Um, there was a letter from the Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee um, that they sent to the chairman just a few hours ago, basically asking Bob Goodlatte, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, very strong uh, Second Amendment advocate, to have hearings and pass legislation on gun control measures. They specifically were talking about background checks, banning assault weapons, restraining orders for families who are worried about um, any family members that might have mental health issues and might be unstable and could hurt themselves or others. But the issue here is that Republicans don't see guns as the problem, right? And so the chances of Bob Goodlatte actually having a hearing on this, moving legislation, Republicans passing something like this, is pretty much nil. And I know there's a lot of energy and there's a lot of really passionate young kids who are you know, on TV right now and talking about this and definitely getting politically active. But changing gun laws in Washington is very hard. It's, it's really hard uh, in, in a way that our listeners often struggle with. And when we hear from them, and I, the way I try to explain it is I can remember once talking to a uh, pro-gun control state legislator, and I was asking the same question, how could something not be done in, in the wake of this big public outcry? And, and I thought the answer was, uh, was really illuminating. His answer was the intensity of the support for gun rights far outpaces the intensity of support for gun control. And I wish it were otherwise, but it's not. And I think that's the reality that a lot of these legislators live with. So then, given what you just told us, is there any daylight for any kind of compromise measure? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of talk right now about this bipartisan bill in the Senate. The president has said he would support it. It's basically, um, it's a backgrounds checks measure that only reinforces existing law. Um, So people are talking about potentially passing that, but Democrats will tell you that this is not really moving the gun control needle at all. It's just reinforcing what is already enacted. And even this is having a problem in the House. I spoke with Jim Jordan um, two nights ago after the president endorsed this bipartisan bill. And Jim Jordan was saying, I'm not going to vote for something like this. This is a hardcore conservative from the House Freedom Caucus. He says, I'm not going to vote for something like this unless it includes conceal carry reciprocity, which basically allows a person from, say, you know, West Virginia who has a conceal carry permit to walk in or, you know, drive into New York State and continue to conceal their weapons. So it basically creates this national conceal carry um, license, and Democrats don't want to move in that direction. So it just it complicates everything. Um, potentially that could pass without conservative support. I do think there are Republicans who would vote for it, both in the Senate if Speaker Ryan puts it on the floor in the House. But again, this isn't really a gun control bill. It's just reinforcing existing laws and making sure that if certain people are not put on a backgrounds checks measure, that there are repercussions for those who are supposed to put them on there. As you know, CNN uh, had a gripping town hall last night uh, featuring Senator Marco Rubio, Senator Bill Nelson, Congressman uh, Ted Deutsch. And uh, that, I think, had a powerful impact on a lot of viewers. But does even something like that move the dial at all in Congress? I mean, is there any takeaway from members of Congress from an event like that? I think watching Rubio, Rubio, um, and that was actually pretty interesting because he is one of those Republicans who you can see potentially open to doing things like expanding background checks. Um, He said he would be open to increasing the age of um, the limit or the age limit for a person to buy an assault rifle, right? Um, But then when it came to an actual 
uh, assault weapons ban. He said, I don't think that that's going to protect anybody because people can get these guns, you know, on the black market or whatever. Um, so I think that there's a conversation going on right now. It's it's really hard to say how long this is going to last because a lot of times in the wake of these shootings, there's a lot of hype about gun control and it ends up fading. The only way this is actually going to move anywhere is if voters continue to make this an issue and if they actually start taking out Republicans that they don't that don't support gun control measures until we actually see someone lose election I don't think we're going to see many changes Andrew what's the view from the White House what has President Trump's reaction to the shooting been well, I think for a president who is obsessed with cable news and is very sort of visual in the way that he thinks, um, this is having a, an effect on him. Uh, he is uh, watching the town hall. He held this meeting at the White House yesterday with parents and, and family. So, I mean, it's clearly resonating on some level with the president. Now, that doesn't mean that anything's going to change, right, as Rachel was saying. I mean, the president um, has said a couple things in recent days that are so, sort of his sort of first initial proposals. He's talked about 21 plus for certain for certain weapons. He's talked about arming teachers, which is obviously a very controversial proposal. Um, he came out today and said that he he thinks that there could be bonuses for for teachers who are willing to be armed. I mean, it, it, it's likely something that's not going to go anywhere. Um, but but I think that he's aware of the swell of. Um, frustration that he sees. He, I've talked to a couple of White House people in the last few days. He has been, uh, I think, personally affected because he has his own his, his own kid. But I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, him being personally affected, him making comments, him tweeting, isn't going to change the narrative that much, unless, like you said, this is a sustained thing that never stops. And he feels that his, you know, his the people who he surrounds himself really believe that. Um, that this needs to change and that there are jobs are on the line. Well, given the strong relationship he's had with the NRA since the campaign, at least, it seems like he is walking a very fine line. Uh, if you parse the language uh, of what he's saying in these uh, meetings, he there's a there's an element of apostasy there on on guns, but. Uh, and, and he could, in, in a way, have like his own Nixon goes to China moment with the NRA. Is there any reason to think that might actually happen? Well, there was one interesting thing that he said. I mean, he said in a in a comment or a tweet that the NRA would back this 21 plus uh, age requirement for certain weapons. Now that the NRA does not back that, right? <laughs> um, you know, so if if he's able to convince somehow the NRA to change its position, that would be a sort of it would be a small moment, but would, in the grand scheme of things, it would be pretty monumental, right? Because it would show that the president has sway with the NRA. Now, we haven't, we have no indication that it's going to happen. But um, if anyone can do it, it's, 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 a, it's a figure like, the, like President Trump, who has, has, he's able to sort of um, rally, rally people behind these issues. But it, it's, it's also politically risky for him, right? I mean, like, he, he has a conservative base that hates the idea of, of gun control. Well, he has broken with party orthodoxy on so many issues. Why couldn't he do it on on this? Is there any reason to think his his base wouldn't let him do it? I think that it's interesting to see the president. He's saying, like, everything is on the table, right? He's talking about arming teachers. He's talking about background checks. He's talking about mental health. It's like he really wants to change the narrative that, you know, the White House and Republicans in power are doing nothing. But in like a, it will be interesting to see what actually changes in a couple of months because remember the whole bump stock thing, you know, they talked about 
getting rid of bump stocks after the shooting in uh, Las Vegas a long time ago. Didn't do anything until the next shooting, and they felt the heat on them. And then they finally acted on that. But I don't know. It'll just be interesting to see which ones are just on the table and are not going to go anywhere. But right. you know. and, and he does this all the time with every policy issue, right? Yeah. I mean, he throws something out. Um, that may be, you know, contrary to, or, to Republican orthodoxy, and then conservatives in the House and elsewhere come to him and say, "Wait a second. And then the next thing you know, he changes his mind. So I, I wouldn't necessarily view his comments today and yesterday as indicative of some major sea change. Um, but who knows, right? I mean, I mean, he views himself as a deal maker. Um, you know, he hasn't necessarily shown that um, as president, but um, he could surprise us. Is there any reason to think that uh, he has a deeply held commitment to the Second Amendment uh, that we don't know about? In, in other words, you know, when members of Congress talk about it, you know, some of them are sportsmen. Some of them are very committed to the idea uh, of uh, gun ownership rights. And it's more believable. And, you know, I don't mean to be too much of a cynic, but you know, that's not really the life that Donald Trump has led. And it doesn't seem like an issue that uh, he's really been committed to his for his entire adult life. I mean, how does he feel about it? Do we know? I mean, I don't think that Donald Trump at his core is a gun guy. But let's not forget, <laughs> his son, Don Jr., is a gun guy. Oh, that's he's true. He's a sportsman. Yeah. Um, he's a hunter. He, and he's talked to his he dad talks about this to his stuff. Dad yeah. About these things, he's been on the phone with him about gun control um, in general. Um, and if anyone has sway with the president, it's him. So I think he's more likely to be hearing from his son rather than some personal, deeply held commitment to the, to the Second Amendment. Yeah, when you go on the Hill, like I have Republican sources who, when I talk to them in the hallway, they will literally pull up their phones and pictures of their latest like kill. These are avid mm-hmm. like you know gun owners. The the sponsor of the bill that passed the House, the Conceal. Uh, Carry Reciprocity Act, Richard Hudson, he's been in touch with the White House and Don Jr., I believe, in particular, in trying to say, no, we should be going that way, not gun control. Like, the mm-hmm. gun control that Democrats are pushing is not the way to address this. We need, you know, more concealed carry reciprocity around the country so we can bring our guns everywhere. So it really just shows this is a divide that, you know, emotion is not necessarily going to overcome and change people, I don't think, because they just view the issue of guns so incredibly differently. And it could be a slightly different story in Florida, right, where you have actual victims of these shootings showing up at the state house in Tallahassee, and it seems like they're not going to go away. So someone like Rubio or perhaps others in Florida might, might change their mind. But the people, you know, in the rest of the country aren't facing these protests, at least mm-hmm. not yet. Rachel, is there any reason to think, let's, let's imagine an imaginary world where Donald Trump does go out on a limb and press the NRA on a couple of these areas on the margins. Uh, would conservatives on the Hill, is there any reason to think that some of them might go along with him? It would really depend on what it looked like, I think. Um, but I think the fact that you have conservatives who are already balking at a background check bill that doesn't even change the law and is endorsed by the NRA a bipartisan bill that will easily pass the Senate, could easily pass the House. I just don't see them supporting anything small, even like raising the age to buy, you know, assault rifles. Or I just, if they're going to, if they are going to stand their ground on that specifically and not even be willing to increase penalties for not, uh, or for breaking current gun laws, then I just don't see them doing that. However, I don't think they need conservatives to do something like this. If the president is going to back some sort of gun proposal. It'll pass the Senate. It would pass the House with Democratic support as well. All they will need is like, you know, maybe half the Republican conference or something like that. It could easily pass, but there will always be your hardliners who don't get behind any of that. 
Okay, so uh, we're recording this on a Thursday. What does next week look like in terms of this, ba- the, this debate? What happens next? I think we'll hear about a lot. Hear about it a lot in Congress. Congress has been out this week, um, so they're out in their districts. They're on recess. They come back on Monday, and I wouldn't be surprised if you see a bunch of members take to the floor and you know give very impassioned speeches on both sides of this. I. You know, the Democrats, a couple of, this sounds terrible, a couple of shootings ago, um, I believe it was after Pulse was when they took the floor of the House um, and basically held a sit-in demanding changes for gun control changes. I don't know if we'll see the Democrats do that again in the House. We could potentially do that. I think they're going to be under a lot of pressure by the base to do something on gun control. So we could see a standoff like that. Um, I don't think we're going to see many hearings, at least in the House. In the Senate, you might have some more moderate centrist Republicans who are willing to have hearings in the coming weeks and months. Um, But again, I don't expect a huge uh, gun control overhaul to pass anytime soon. I think what happens next week will totally be dependent on whether or not this conversation lasts uh, another week right i mean it it could very well it could very well um be off of cnn and and all the other cable news channels and i think if that's the case then you'll see the president and his staff sort of uh begin to talk about it a lot less well it'll be interesting to see where members come back on this because they have uh the most finely attuned political antenna and after spending some time in their districts they'll have a much better uh sense of where their constituents are on this uh and uh we'll see what happens in the coming weeks thanks so much for joining us today rachel Absolutely happy to be here. We're definitely going to ask you back again. And Andrew, you're going to stick around because we have another segment to go. Great. Thanks. So let's welcome reporter and editor of Politico's eHealth newsletter, Arthur Allen. Welcome, Arthur. Hi. How are you? Doing well. This is your first time on NerdCast, right? It is. Yeah. Well, well, it's great to have you. But I've been a nerd for years. <laughs> so you'll fit right in. Uh, it's great to have you. And, and you couldn't, couldn't have come at a better time uh, with, with this uh, story. So our second data point today is one. As in, Veterans Affairs Secretary David Shulkin is the only cabinet-level holdover from the Obama administration. Arthur, you wrote a fascinating story this week about what's happening with Shulkin and the Veterans Administration. Can you walk us through some of the intrigue that's happening over there at the VA these days? Thanks. Um, Well, Shulkin is, yeah, he's the only holdover from the Obama administration. And he's been pretty popular at the White House um, from what we've heard. But uh, this fall, he started getting into hot water with some of the staff over there. The the differences have to do with his plans for sort of freeing up veterans to leave the VA to get health care. And there's a question of how much they should be able to decide on their own, I want to go outside. And this affects, basically, the, the, the VA has kind of a bad reputation now. And if you let every leave for everything. It's going to sort of gut the organization. It's a fine line to walk. Um, And there was a bill that he supported that has bipartisan support in the Senate that uh, the White House didn't like a lot of back and forth over that. And apparently that sort of created this bad, uh, some bad blood between him and some of the politicals on his staff and the politicals at the White House who were worried about or interested in veteran stuff. So then um, this scandal, you know, came up, which has to do with it was an IG report over a trip that he took this summer to Denmark and England, um, in which he spent a lot of time sightseeing. His wife came along. There was a business purpose for it. But the IG uh, report found a bunch of uh, kind of uh, distasteful things, including uh, the fact that um, Shulkin's chief of staff seemed to have doctored an email to make it uh, – 
looked like he was going to get an award there. And because he was getting an award there under these arcane rules, the VA would have allowed his wife to come and paid for her trip. Pretty typical sort of travel scandal for the White House these days, I would say. Ed Shulkin uh, immediately paid the money back for the tickets and the Air Force said he didn't know nothing about it, said he'd you know, cleared it through the uh, ethics people. Um, of course, some people continue to want him to leave. And now one thing that's uh, that he did that may have sort of dug it the ditch a little deeper for him was that he put a sort of an exculpatory letter that attacked the IG report on the VA website. And uh, it was later taken down and replaced with a statement from Kurt Kasher, who's ostensibly his his spokesman. That, that said, you know, that the White House takes accountability very seriously and sort of left open the, you know, the possibility that something further was going to happen. Let me get this straight then. So he gets in trouble with the inspector general's office mm-hmm. on this ethics issue. And right. all of a sudden, uh, the knives come out and his staff throws him under the bus? Well, yeah. His, it, although the, the extent to which it's his staff and it's people at the White House who are tied in with his staff. But I thought he had uh, some sort of friendly relationship with the president. He was one of the f- president's favorite members of the cabinet. And isn't it a kind of an ideological, non-ideological position or at least his cabinet? <laughs> position? Well, I mean, you know, it's a largely non-ideological position. I mean, this bill that he supported and – uh, was trying to get the White House to back, was supported 14 to 1 in the Senate. And it's like this crucial bill that deals with um, how much money is going to be spent to care for vets outside of the VA. And it, But it's sort of a compromise because it doesn't give the vets total total right to sort of go out and get care wherever they want. Uh, but it, you know, it was totally bipartisan except for one guy on the committee, uh, Jerry Moran of Kansas, and it was his bill that the White House supports. Does Trump support it? Who knows? Does Trump even know about it? But um, some of the these people at the White House who are paying attention to VA affairs and some of their allies in the VA who are politicals, you know, weren't happy with this direction. And apparently that's uh, the person at the who Shul- one of Shulkin's aides who was supporting it very strongly was this guy Tom Bowman. They are trying to get rid of him because he's stood firm on this that he wants it to be a bipartisan bill. Well, what struck me about your story was what jumped off the page to me was the idea that the the secretary himself was talking about subversion within yes. his own agency against him. Uh, how unusual is that? That strikes me as pretty unusual. I mean, I've been watching um, Babylon Berlin, uh, you know, which talks about like the subversion by the uh, leadership of the of the Reichswehr against the uh, Weimar Republic, and uh, it, it was a little reminiscent of that. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, for him to come out directly and and use the word subversion, which he did a couple of times when I spoke with him. Um, you know, tells you that it's a pretty unusual situation. Andrew, you're you're in the White House all the time, and, and you know this much better than I do. But it strikes me that there is an inordinate number of uh, problems with uh, agency heads and the White House. There is infighting constantly, turnover constantly. How commonplace is this? 
Well, you, I think you've seen a similar sort of issue with taking uh, e- either private planes or first class planes uh, with a number of cabinet secretaries. Obviously, Tom Price, the, the HHS secretary, was brought down over this issue by some great reporting by our political colleagues. Uh, Scott Pruitt is now sort of embroiled in his own mini scandal about flying first class right. all over the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so the White House is very aware of this issue. They're very sensitive to it at the moment. Um, uh, but in the case of Shulkin, I think that they are sort of waiting, at least at the highest levels of the White House, they're sort of sitting back and they're saying, okay, is this going to become a scandal that overtakes the rest of our agenda? Is this going to be something that is front page news consistently? And with this White House, they really only react when that's the case. Mm-hmm. They only react uh, harshly when they feel like Trump himself is being overshadowed in some capacity. Um, so uh, there is certainly frustration at the lower levels of the White House and the people who are involved in day-to-day VA matters. And this is about it's sort of a proxy fight that's been going on for months and months about the future of the VA and you know who's the most conservative and 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 who is Shulkin really. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but I right. think I think this is going to certainly color. Trump's personal relationship with Shulkin. I mean, you referenced earlier they had a very good, right. friendly relationship at the beginning of this. Um, but I think it's sort of a um, to be determined right now exactly what Shulkin's future is. So it's, it's fair to say it's more than about the optics of the travel. Up until the scandal hit, people have been very happy with him, pretty much on both sides of the aisle, and um, and and he's he's really got this very strong uh, reform agenda. And do you want to rock that? And you know. Who's going to replace him? Is it going to? If it, I mean, is it, how easy would it be to replace him with one of the ideological um, people who are supported by concerned veterans of America, who really, you know, are kind of out there in relation even to sort of the moderate Republicans on these committees? And I don't think they necessarily would would go for that. So, um, my gut is that you know they would like to keep him if they can. And I think that this White House is very just in general, is very conscious of news cycles and how quickly they move. Um, They were shocked by how long the Rob Porter scandal lasted. And um, they're aware that, you know, the school shooting, whatever it is, I mean, is going to overtake any sort of discussion about about this issue pretty quickly. Um, And I'm sure that they have their fingers crossed that that this will all just sort of go away. (laughs) Right. is Is there more sensitivity to this matter because veterans' issues are so central to to, uh, Trump's core message? He's talked – it's one of the few things he's really seemed engaged in, you know, Mm -hmm. as a substantive issue. Maybe he's he's not in command of the, you know, the the data or the the real issues that are affecting the department, but it's something he has talked about consistently. Does that make it a more sensitive issue for him? I think that that will be the sort of – last straw for the White House if this story turns into a where is Trump, why doesn't he care about what's happening at the mm-hmm. VA, which I don't mm-hmm. think – I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think it quite has got to that to that point yet. No, I don't think so, although I do get the sense from sort of Fox and Twitter handling of it that there is kind of this, oh, you know, you, you've laid off people. You, you've made accountability – you know, directed at Shulkin. You've made accountability a big issue and they have like replaced – like 1,300 people over the last year there, you know, what about you, you know, spending $120,000, you know, to go visit uh, Wimbledon and, you know, the palaces of Copenhagen. So, um, but, you know, I, I, 
that that's a drum beat that you hear, but it's it's more like you know very sort of low. You know, it needs more cowbell before it gets somewhere. Right. I think. And it doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of cowbell coming out of Congress, right? Other than say no. uh, Senator Moran, who you talked right. about, right? There. And even Moran, interestingly, has been quiet about this because uh, I've been hitting him up his office, and they're kind of. They're they're not being aggressive about. There's one congressman Kaufman from Colorado who ha- called for Shulkin to to uh, depart. He's the only one that was like right as it was kind of coming out. Since then, there's been Bupkis and um, the committee, the, the the four corners or whatever the, the 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 Democrat leading Democrats and Republicans on both committees in in in, in Congress sort of. Sp- voice support for him and, you know, said, oh, they're concerned about accountability. I mean, they're, it's hard to tell. You know, there's going to be more investigation. There's going to be more talk about it. But Well, thank you for, so much for joining us, Arthur. Thank you for having me. Andrew, it's always great to have you. Yeah, thanks. And a big thank you to our listeners. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. And email us at nerdcast at politico.com. Our producers are Bridget Mulcahy and Micaela Rodriguez. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our researcher is Zach Montalaro, and our illustrator is Bill Cookman. We'll talk to you next week.